Hello, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever in the world you are. Uh, as always, I'm Dan, and I'm joined today by Paul. Good evening. And Calm. Hello. Um, we'll get straight into it, gents, because I, I think we could have three hours on this and not get finished. Handball. Uh, it's been a prominent feature of this weekend's Premier League action. Um where, where did we start? Probably at the beginning, which was at um, the Amex on Saturday morning. Um, with that, that was the first handball and, and a pretty farcical ending to what was a very entertaining game. But where did we start with this handball? Well, I think it's it's not just this weekend, Dan. It's almost become the story of the Premier League through three weeks, I think. It, it, it feels as though, actually, people are saying, oh, it's VAR, it's VAR, it's VAR. I'm not sure we've got many problems with VAR except for handball. At the moment, I feel like the rest of what's been been used, uh, what VAR has been used for, is working reasonably well. But we've created this complete mess of a situation with handball. I think the one at the Amex, and maybe that's where it does bring the VAR rules into play, because I think it, I think that one probably was a handball. Um, I don't know why Mope's hand is up at the angle it is. Um, it, it's come far enough, I think, and he's facing the play. Um, I think it probably is handball and it's a header on goal. And as we've discussed last week in the in the Man U Crystal Palace incident, where it's you know a shot or an effort at goal, the rules are stricter. Um, and I think it probably was handball, but we get into this really difficult position of what, what are the rules around the referee having blown the full-time whistle? Now, I, I read yesterday, I think, that there was a situation in Germany last year where a ref had blown for half-time yes, and yes, then came did. back and, and, and gave a penalty uh, for handball. But I, I under, as I understand it, the um, he said in that incident, the referee, it would have been a different scenario had it been at the end of the game. So, I, I mean, I, I haven't actually seen anyone clarify exactly what the rule is. My general take is, unless it says he definitely isn't allowed to, then it's up to the ref. And if he wants to say... I'm going to restart the game and give a penalty. Then that's that's his um, discretion. But but it may be that there is a, a code written into the rules that says that shouldn't happen. They found something I think that one of the refs had said right at the start of of VAR, which was that if there was a decision that the referee shouldn't blow the final whistle, he should allow VAR the time to look at it. But it was pretty instantaneous there. I don't think you can blame the referee. It wasn't an obvious handball to the to the naked eye. Um, it was headed off the line and he immediately thought, that's it, that's the end of the game. Uh, but I do think it was probably handball, that one. Whereas some of the ones we get into later <laughs> in the weekend. Um, I mean, I, the Crystal Palace one, they got one last week that was probably slightly fortunate. I think they were probably unfortunate on Saturday. I can see why that was given, but I don't think that's a penalty. And I think if you're going to give that as a penalty, then... We're going to have a lot more penalties, which we have so far in the Premier League season. And the one on um, Sunday, dear me. The, the one on Sunday, the, the Tottenham-Newcastle game, I can't even see why that's been given. I just think that is absolutely Ludicrous. the most ridiculous penalty. And look, everybody, especially me, can take some joy in Spurs <laughs> dropping two points and Jose storming up the tunnel. Um but, you know, uh, it, that's just never a penalty. Never in a million years. Carroll's about two yards away from Dyer when he heads it. Dyer's got his back to Carroll. It's hit him in a, on the arm, which is in a position where, you know, he's used it for elevation to jump. I just do not think in a million years that can be a penalty. But I think as soon as we saw they started 
bringing the silly lines out to work out whether Carroll was onside or not. I think the inevitability of what was coming next was was obvious. I, and, and before I bring Corn in, because I appreciate I've ranted on this for a while now, <laughs> that everyone last season was saying the refs need to go to the screen, the refs need to go to the screen. So far, a ref only goes to the screen and decides oh. to overturn his original decision. Now, for me, the point of the screen it, it, that feels like the screen's been used a bit as a fig leaf because it's like, oh, no, it is still the referee's decision. Look, he's gone over to a screen. But until we get a decision where the referee goes over to the screen, looks at it and says, you know what, Mr. Video Referee sitting 30 miles away, <laughs> I still think what I saw on the pitch with my eyes is the right decision. I'm going to stick with that original decision. Until we start seeing that, I'm not sure there's really any point using the screen because all they're doing is going over to the screen and then doing what the VAR man says. So um, I think the handball rule is a complete mess. And I think the way that the referees are making these decisions is not particularly helping the um, the overall confidence that we've got a system that's workable. And, you know, I, I, one final thing, I think Steve Bruce deserves quite a lot of credit because Steve Bruce is post-match interview. I don't know if people <laughs> saw it yesterday. I did. He, ba- he basically said, this is absolutely bonkers mad. And look, I'm glad we've got a point, but that's never a penalty in a million years. And and, and I think we need, as um, a, a football community, a little bit more of that. Um, a little bit more of, you know, the managers that have benefited from it saying, come on, guys, this is bonkers now. Well, the manager who was on the wrong end of it certainly had strong feelings on the issue so much so that he just disappeared. Um, you've actually raised an interesting point, though, which um, I haven't considered. F- for me, one of the most controversial things of the weekend was when uh, Connolly went down for Brayton and the referee gave a penalty. Was that a clear and obvious error? Uh, I mean, I think this is a good time to pass over to you, Cam. Well, I think it's 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 interesting the, the point you make, um, Paul, around uh, you know the fact that, that the refs aren't sort of sticking by their decisions, and I don't know if it, it is there sort of pressure on them to let sort of VAR decide, um, you know, rather than actually them being empowered to to stick to their own decision. I don't know where the balance of power lies, or or, or how that's been uh, sort of dictated to the referees, or if it has been at all whether they just happen to to think that the the VAR is right. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure if, if anyone knows any, any any more about that or whether we can just speculate on that one. Um, otherwise, you would think that, that it would get to a point where, because, you know, let's face it, we know what, there are certain certainly some referees out there with quite strong personalities and confidence, their own abilities. I'll leave you to speculate what might be thinking of there, who you would think would want to sort of uh, stand by their own decision. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, like I said, you can speculate, Paul. Um, I couldn't possibly comment. But yeah, you, you would think that it will get to a point otherwise if they are empowered to say, no, you know, I've I've said it was or wasn't a penalty or whatever. Um, and I'm going to stick with that. But uh, yeah, like you say, at the moment, it's like, yeah, they use it uh, as a bit of a cover up. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see if that uh, if, if that changes, I think. That takes us. Um, so to the next thing I wanted to discuss, which was um, managers who are beginning to find their paths at a crossroad now. I think that um, Pep Guardiola at Man City were absolutely routed by Leicester, and uh, particularly Sean Dyche look to me like they have done as much as they can at their respective clubs, and it might be time to move on. 
Yeah, so we, we, we chatted about this yesterday, Dan, didn't we, and thought it would be a good thing to discuss. I think there's some similarities at the moment between Manchester City and Burnley, which is a slightly crazy thing to say. <laughs> um, now, I, I, I don't think anyone doubts the fantastic job that Pep Guardiola's done at Manchester City. Um, I don't think anyone doubts that they have problems at the moment with injuries in the squad and the squad not being particularly well balanced. Maybe Pep hasn't had all the players he wanted in the transfer window bought as early as he would have liked them. They're all things we're going to say about Burnley as well. You know, Burnley only have a very, very small squad. They've got lots of injuries. They haven't had the players the manager wanted in the in the transfer window. Um, now, Manchester City, to me yesterday, not only did they defend poorly, which we all know they're capable of doing at times, I don't think the shape looks right. I know he felt that he kind of had to change it and play 4-2-3-1 rather than more of a sort of flat, if that's the right word, 4-3-3. Not that I think Man City ever play a flat anything. Um, because of the personnel he got available to them. But people talk about the defending. Manchester City played with two holding midfield players yesterday. They played with Fernandinho and Rodri. And I'm still, I think I made this point on the end of season um, podcast, Dan, that Rodri still has some way to go to convince me yeah, yeah. Um, that he's a player at, of a Premier League type. Um, but they played with two holding midfield players and conceded five at home to Leicester on the counter-attack. Now, that, that shouldn't happen. You know, if, if you're playing with a, a back four, even in modern football where everyone throws their full backs forward, if you're playing with two centre-halves and two people holding in front, there's no way you should be conceding five goals on the counter-attack. And I think fundamentally it's about a little bit more at Manchester City than just defending that isn't very good. They don't quite seem to me, and look, I'm one person and other people might disagree, they don't quite look to me as though they're pressing with the same intensity, as though they're playing with quite the same enjoyment in the game. Um, it looks as though it's become a little bit like, remember how Spain became after they had the glorious, you know, six years or whatever it was when they won World Cups and, and Euros. Um, Spain got to a point where they were still dominating the ball and passing it a lot, but they weren't really going anywhere. And I think there's a little bit of that in Manchester City at the moment. They're not playing with a great deal of intensity. Now, I flip that to, to Burnley. Some of the same problems, very, very small squad, lots of injuries, not much transfer activity, and a manager who's done a phenomenal job at his football club, Sean Dyche, but who people are starting to say, is this the end? And I thought with Dyche, the fact that yesterday they're 1-0 down at home to Southampton, that's a game that if you're Burnley, you've got to be thinking you need to get something out of. You know, Burnley don't need to get points at Manchester City. They do need to get points at home to Southampton. Um... And I thought to to be one nil down and to stick with the eleven you've got on the field and make no substitutions in ninety minutes. Now I know you look at his bench, he had a couple of fullbacks and a load of kids. While he's one nil down at home, what do fullbacks do? I just think at some point you have to fine for seventy five minutes, but surely at some point you think, well, one nil down here, there's nothing to lose, let's try something. Um, you know, we've seen it before. What was the guy at Manchester United named Colm? Makeda? Yeah. Now, no one thought Makeda was better than the players Man United had on the pitch that day when they scored that goal against Villa. But it was, well, we need a goal, let's do something. And, and he come on and got the winner. I remember Freddie Sears a few years ago doing it for West Ham. Now, he was a young kid, come through the academy, 
he, he ultimately wasn't good enough to play in the Premier League, but they threw him on late in a game where they needed a goal, a bit of enthusiasm, ran around a little bit, made some things happen and, and got himself on the score sheet. And I just think when, when a manager doesn't make a substitution in that situation, either to change the system and throw one of his experienced fullbacks on and maybe go three at the back or whatever, or to throw a young kid on in a forward position and, and try and you know, think about winning the game, it strikes me as he's trying to send a message. And I thought that was Sean Dyche trying to send a message to his board to say, I need players. I don't have good enough players in the squad. And essentially it came across a little bit as a sulk. <laughs> and we've seen that before. You, you know, you had it with, with Rafa at the end at your club, Dan, when he, he sort of got frustrated with the transfer policy and he sulked and it affected the team's performances on the pitch. And you had it at Chelsea. Antonio Conte won the league, didn't get Lukaku and sulked for a full season and it affected Chelsea's performances on the pitch. And I worry a little bit that that might be what's happening at Burnley. I'd be worried if I was a Burnley fan, but equally I'd be worried if I was a Manchester City fan because at the moment they don't look, either team, like they've got the enthusiasm and the drive and the intensity that they need to, to reach their goals. I thought Damien Plessis was a good player, Paul. I don't know what you mean. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm sure he was in, in somebody's mind, Dan. Just, just maybe not Rafa's. <laughs> yeah, uh, or, or mine, or anyone who watched him play football. <laughs> oh, there, there was, a, there was a couple. Oh, uh, I can't think of any of the names. It was that bad. But basically, what Benitez did at the end of his time at Liverpool was fill the academy full of rubbish. Some some guy from, called Vita Flora from he was signing from Brazilian fourth fourth division. I think he went back to the Brazilian sixth division. God blimey, he was terrible. Um, where do you stand on Sean Dyche, Cam? Uh, well, now that is a question. Um, <laughs> I think uh, you know. Yeah, I think he's done an, an amazing job. I was actually a little bit surprised that you sort of grouped grouped them together, actually, um, because. Uh, you know, Burnley are obviously in such a different situation to, to City in terms of, uh, you know, the, the funds available to them. I was going to say the size of the club, because actually we, we think that Man City are a, a sort of much, much bigger club than, than they are because of the success they've had recently. Um, and I'm not just saying that as a, as a bitter Man United fan. But, um, you know, but, but in terms of their current setup, there's, they're obviously, you know, m- miles apart in terms of what City can do if they want to versus what, what Burnley can do. So... You know, in terms of the, the funding side of it, there with them, I, I don't know if 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 the lack of activity is due to the current situation that we're going through. I, I'm not sure. I'm not close enough to how the clubs run, to be quite honest. But it's it, you know, do do clubs get a bit of a pass on that at the moment because there's so much uncertainty? Um, I don't know. Is is, is maybe one point. Um, but then also, you know, my, my sort of worry with if if Burnley did something drastic, and I don't know if we're quite saying that it's going to come to this. In, in the very short term, but you know how if if Dice left Burnley, how many seasons do you think Burnley would remain in the Premier League for? You know, to me, it feels like if they got rid of him, it would be a bit of an end of an era and the start of another cycle that would involve a rotation at, at least as far you know as far as the Championship, because I just feel it would be one of those the, the sort of the spark and the magic, which maybe it's already starting to fizzle out. Perhaps I don't know. But I just I just worry that, you know, the job he has done there, you know, is 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 genuinely amazing, really, for the, the resources he's had and the size of the club. And I just think if 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 he left, it would be a bit of a case of sort of bye bye Burnley, really. Um, I, might, I might, you know, I could, I could be wrong, of course, but um, I, I would just worry that that would be a 
that would be a bit of a signal that uh, you know the good times are sort of over there. Um, I don't know if you'd, you'd necessarily share that view, um, Dan or Paul, but that that's my take on it. I, I think um, in both cases, I think you'd be looking more about less about our Burnley going to do something drastic and get rid of Sean Dyche. I mean, if they do, they deserve everything that comes to them, whether that's relegation <laughs> or whatever else, frankly. Um, I think the, 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 the reason I group them together, Khan, is more in the perspective of are they two managers who are looking at their own position and saying, you know, mm, is yeah. this the right time for me? to move on for whatever mm. reason. And again, I have much more sympathy with Sean Dyche telling me he's only got 13 senior players fit when he's, he's, he's probably built that whole squad in about 80 million on about 80 million pounds. If that probably less than that. And, and a difference between Guardiola telling me he's only got 13 senior players fit when look, I get it. Everyone gets injuries. It doesn't matter how much money you've spent, but when you've spent eight hundred million pound, maybe I've got a little bit less sympathy for for your injuries because yeah, absolutely, um, you should have enough players at that football club capable of of playing a home game against Leicester and performing better than they performed. Uh, just 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 very very quickly, a quick quick point then on City, and actually you've sort of te- teed me up quite nicely there, Paul. That the only the only thing I was going to say on them really is that I think their main issue actually falls down to to recent recruitment and not replacing that that sort of spine that kind of was there almost going back to the Mancini times, um, which, you know, is, is best part of 10 years ago now. But obviously, you know, company has gone. David Silva now has gone. Aguero is now not in the team because injury. Fernandinho is, is aging and, and Rodri, who you mentioned, is supposed to be his successor. You know, and all of a sudden they look a different proposition without out those people in the team because the people they have brought in, you know, they tried Sane for a year or two, didn't work. They've got rid of him. Rodri's come in. Will he be there a year from now? Who knows? The the ever revolving cast of centre backs. There's a new one fresh in, and you know they've got rid of one of the old ones who cost you know ridiculous amounts of money. It's it's a bit of a mess, you know. It's like they've got too much money that they know what to do with, and they're not they're not making considered purchases. You know, they're just splashing the cash around willy nilly and hoping something sticks. Um, and it doesn't feel like they're really doing a proper job of of properly, you know, sort of scouting these players and actually looking, are they right for the type of football they want to play or, or for the Premier League? Um, and they're just sort of looking, oh, who who's meant to be good up and coming in Europe? Right, here's 50 million, let's go get him. And uh, now I know that, you know, shouldn't throw stones in glass houses because Manchester United's recruitment has been abysmal for the last decade. So I can't say too much. Um, so maybe this would be better coming from one of you two, but but equally it doesn't change the fact that I, I think those points are still valid in in relation to Man City as well. It did have to come. It did have to come from Dan because I I have a glass house in this regard as well. Um, but I think I think just just to pick up on 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 that, I think I agree with you about the spine, the company, Toure, Silva, Aguero, Fernandinho, that spine which which Guardiola was very lucky to inherit, and it doesn't make him a bad manager, but but he inherited a great spine of players. Um, you look at what they've added since then, and, you know, Sterling, yes, De Bruyne, yes, and, and I am a big Laporte fan. I think he's a really good player, and getting him properly reintegrated in the side is important for them. But take those three out, and, and how many of the others that they've gone and added since then have been really critical parts of the Manchester City story? That doesn't mean some of the others aren't good players, but when you look at the players who are who are the you know the the crooks of that team who make it tick, Laporte, De Bruyne, Sterling, yes, 
Um, you know, where the others, Bernardo Silva had one really good season, um, has faded a little bit. The the goalkeeper um, made a good impression when he first signed, but has been less consistent definitely in the last 12, 18 months or so. So I think there is a point there about have they really, and it's hard to do, you know, you, you are not going to every five years hit on every signing. And and Dan and I have, have talked about this on the, on the end of season podcast, uh, podcast with Liverpool that they've had five years of barely getting a signing wrong and and inevitably at some point you will and there's a question about whether Man City have maybe got enough of those big ones 100% right when I, I look at what City are doing they're about to say is it Ruben Diaz from from Benfica yeah that's the name I believe I'll yeah. confess I know nothing of him yeah well the same yeah and so I, I don't know whether he's any good or not but from my point of view They've, they seem to be like just bouncing around different targets because they, they wanted Kubalali and that's that's pretty obvious. But I, I did allude to it in that, that first podcast, Paul, that Napoli are difficult to deal with and uh, the, their chairman may only be second to um, the gentleman from Lyon whose name I can't remember and I'm sure you're going to tell me because I know Arsenal are negotiating at the moment. Mr. For- Aulas, Jean-Michel Aulas, I believe. And they are, uh, you're negotiating for Awa, I don't know if that's pronounced correctly or not, I believe. Um, so City, to me, don't seem to have got the first choice centre half, and he could turn out to be a very good player, I, I don't know. But um, normally City just well, he, get it done, and they, they haven't with Kubelali, and I don't know why. Well, he, he needs to be good, because, I mean, it's, it's, it's 65 million quid. Mm. <laughs> it's costing you know, this isn't... Uh, this isn't some guy they've just found in a park. You know? as, as well. I love a lot of money. Well, I don't know. I think they found not of us never heard of him. I think, <laughs> I think they found not a Mendy in the park. More though. about us, I don't know. But like it's. Uh, well, <laughs> well I, I have I have been to Lisbon recently, and I didn't see any any you know centre halves knocking around parks. Car, <laughs> I thought maybe I'll take them home with us. Yes. No, um, I think look, it, it's right. I don't. I don't watch Portuguese football so I, I can't tell you whether he's any good or not um, but clearly it's a lot of money and as Khan said they, they can't get it wrong when, they, when they're spending that, that much money my understanding on Koulibaly Dan is that the issue is Napoli have a price and that price is not negotiable there is a price at which they would release him but that is not a negotiable price and I believe it's it's closer to 70 million than 60 um, and he's 29 years of age and I think the people above Pep Guardiola at Manchester City, and I know there are some, um, don't necessarily see the value in that signing uh, because of the the combination of age and price. And I think that is why they've moved on um, to, to the chap from Benfica. Yeah, I think I think Man United were 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 sort of having a look. I think before Maguire, and I think maybe we we didn't go through for for similar reasons. I know he won't have he will have been twenty eight then, but still similar applies. It's you know sort of resale value etc. Versus what we can get out of him. So I think that does seem to be a factor in why you know there's been people talking about him moving for about three or four years and it never quite happens. Um, and it possibly it's it's for a combination of those two reasons of of price and age. And City are better off ultimately because they've got rid of Otamendi. Well, there is that. Who is not very good, let's be honest. Um, there's a lot of strange scorelines at the moment. I mean, there's one on now. When was the last time Aston Villa scored three goals away from home? Um, that I don't know, but there's been some really curious scorelines. Is there any particular reason? My, my theory is um, 
that we're going to get some strange results until crowds come back in because home advantage is not what it once was. Well, let me tell you, Dan, <laughs> poor defending in the Premier League is not a new, <laughs> not a new phenomenon. <laughs> There's been plenty of it this weekend. <laughs> I think it's, but I do think it's it's a combination of. Um, I think you know you touched upon the you know Villa away from home. Well, yes, they are technically away from home, but actually. You know, does it matter? I mean, first of all, Fulham isn't exactly the most intimidating place when <laughs> when there are twenty thousand West Londoners there. But um, but but yeah, I think the the fact that the the home away advantage isn't isn't necessarily what it is, even with the um, you know you know Sky Sky tried to make it sound like you're there, but I don't think you obviously hear. I don't know if you hear that in the grounds. I believe that's just for the benefit of of the viewers. So yeah, for the players, there is that sort of. You know, essentially a bit like a training uh, game. So I, I, you know, I think it is perhaps difficult to keep the same intensity and concentration. Not saying that that's the case in all games, of course, um, but I think that's definitely a factor. But then I think also you combine that with the, uh, you know, the sort of favoured um, style of of plays at the moment as well, where teams do play on the front foot a lot more and and value sort of attack-minded players perhaps more you know we've been talking about the troubles man city have had trying to find a you know the the expense they've spent over the last decade trying to get a, a good good defense together and haven't quite it's never been the strongest part of their team um it it just seems that at the moment sort of culturally in football um defending is becoming you know a little bit of a of an afterthought you know if you think back to sort of the mid noughties when you know, Jose Mourinho and Rafa Benitez's sort of pragmatism was all the rage. Um, that was that was a bit of a trend. And I think now over the last sort of five years, we've seen another trend, which is uh, more around the sort of high, you know, the high press and the attacking intensity and uh, perhaps the expense of, 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 of the defending. So I think maybe it's a, it's a combination of those two factors. But so, yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as well, guys. Yeah, so I, I just before I just before I respond on the specific point, but when you said Con that it feels a bit like a training game for the players, uh, Bill Belichick, who's the coach of the New England Patriots, was asked after their first game of the NFL season, what was the atmosphere like with no uh, fans in the stadium, and typical Belichickian style, he just gave a one-word answer. He just said practice um and then moved on uh, and i think that there is something about it feeling like a, a practice session a training session um in in those environments and i think that probably is playing into some of the crazy score lines i think not only that but we touched on it um when van dyke made the mistake the other week for liverpool against leeds that you know that loss of concentration because it, it doesn't quite feel as as hyped up when you've not got 80,000 people, 60,000 people, 40,000 people, whatever, screaming at you every time you get the ball, whether people can just take their eye off it a little bit and make a sort of sloppy mistake like Van Dyke did. Um, and of course, if a striker does that and he misses a, a, an easy chance, it doesn't quite get remembered in the same way as a, as a centre-half who makes an absolute ricket and, and it ends up in the back of the net, or, or a goalkeeper indeed. Um, and there's been a few of them. So, you know, I, I think... That plays a part in it. I also think that there definitely is a change in the way that we play football now in in the modern era. Um, I think, you know, everyone talks about fullbacks going forward, fullbacks going forward, and fullbacks going forward is not a new thing. When Arsenal won the league in in 89 and 91, Dixon and Winterburn went forward a lot. Um, A lot of Arsenal's goals were Alan Smith headers from Dixon or Winterburn crosses. Um, what's different, I think, now is in those days, one went, one stayed. 
And that was the way pretty much everyone did it. If Nigel Winterburn went rampaging down the left flank, Dixon stayed, the, the two centre-halves just took ground and almost became a three while they defended, um, so while they defended against any potential counter-attack. Um, and now, no one seems to care about just letting both fullbacks go at the same time. That just seems to be the way teams play. We talked about Leicester the first week of the season. I think the left-back played the ball in the channel. It got crossed over and the right-back headed it in at the far post. It's just the way modern football has played. And, and I do think there's something as well about coaches that for years and years, you know, there have been a cluster in the Premier League of traditional British managers who've worked their way up through the leagues and have come at it with a bit more of that kind of pragmatism and, and you know, an appreciation for the physical side of the game. And I'm not accusing any managers... Big Sam or Tony Pulis or anyone of being kind of cloggers. But what I am saying is they had a way of playing that that generally was relatively safety first and focused on being tough to break down and, and made themselves really difficult to beat. And people didn't like going to Bolton and they didn't like going to Stoke. Before that, no one liked going to Wimbledon, even though you actually went to Crystal Palace. Um, <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I, I don't know who those teams are now in the Premier League. I think Burnley, potentially, when, when there's a full house at Turf Moor is one. Sheffield United, to an extent, although I think Chris Wilding's teams are pretty at- attacking. They're not short passing, necessarily. They, they're, they're a little bit more direct. But I think they, they get plenty of numbers forward. Um, so I think... there's been a sort of change in the ethos of the sort of coaches that the clubs in the middle of the Premier League and below are looking for. And that is kind of reflected in the way that you then see the score lines. Um, Because, I mean, it's not quite like Spain. In in La Liga, I think defending is basically considered cheating. Um, (laughs) It's considered tantamount to cheating, uh, which might just be because people associate defending with Diego Simeone and he is a cheat so there, there may be some of that but um, I think the uh, the Premier League is going more and more that way where you're 1-0 down away from home and rather than thinking let's stick in the game and we might get a chance from a set play in the last 10 minutes teams are more and more going right we're 1-0 down let's get forward let's get after it and I don't think that was the way the game was played in this league 15 years ago so we're definitely becoming a bit more Spanish in our outlook of where we want to play, which is leading to lots of entertaining games. I mean, again, this weekend, you, you, the games you, you've already talked about, Dan Brighton and Manchester United was a fantastic game. Um, you know, there have been some really good entertaining football matches. Obviously, West Brom and Chelsea, there was a goal every 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, it, 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 without Kepper. Without Kepper as well. We can't blame Kepper this week. Um, but but there was, in those games, I mean, you look at the, the that Chelsea West Brom game, I think five of the six goals are bad defending, and the th- and the last one was handball. <laughs> yeah, true, but uh, uh, but not handball. But it was handball. Where's the handball rule going? What are we doing? What's my name? I don't know. Um, well, on on your behalf, I will call Sam Allardyce and Tony Pulis cloggers. Um, but <laughs> what what you're saying is right. I mean. New, Newcastle did what what you said doesn't happen anymore yesterday. They, they kind of stuck around one nil. That's true, and then got that ludicrous penalty. But I think that is an ability thing because Tottenham are a much better team than Newcastle. 
So you, you can kind of understand why they, they, they just hung around at one. And they shouldn't have. Son had a couple of chances in the first half and they hit the post twice. The woodwork was particularly busy this weekend. Mourinho must have had his tape measure out again. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think with the Spurs game, actually, um, it, it was... I mean, Newcastle did hang on and eventually claim a point, but they didn't really hang on because they defended deep and defended well. No, Spurs because... should have scored five or six goals. <laughs> it was just it was just a combination of poor finishing, I think, that stopped Spurs winning. Um, and then, obviously, the ridiculous penalty decision. Yeah. Um... If, if we then look at the, the the stories of the weekend, I mean, the the, the Brighton Man United game is one of the most entertaining games I've I've seen for a long time. Um, but th- there was plenty going on this weekend. Uh, what what caught your eyes across the divisions or, or continents? Even one thing that struck me is that um, Ronald Koeman got off to a, a, a bright start as the uh, the new Barcelona manager as their thump Villarreal. Oh, I was just going to say on a, on a on a similar line, your your old friend uh, Luis Suarez didn't didn't get off to a bad start himself. It, of, of having left Barcelona um, at Atletico, I saw he scored scored two and set up one. I think um, as they got off to a flying start as well. So another another story from Spain there. I don't know if you still retain the same affection you had for him back in the day, Dan. I think, but, I think he's a. Obviously, it's fair to say I never shared it anyway. But <laughs> I, I think he's a, a fabulous footballer, and I always have. Um... In terms of of how he put, he, I don't know. Since he signed for Barcelona, it seems to me as though he's still got that nafty edge to him, but has cut out a lot of the win at any costs kind of mentality. That's what it seems like to me. Although Diego Simeone will soon knock that out of him. Well, yeah, that'll be a yeah match made in in, in heaven or, or hell, depending on which way you look at it. I, <laughs> let's just say I did I did enjoy watching him blubbing through his uh, goodbye press conference, and I'll <laughs> I'll leave it at that and hand over to Paul, who I rudely interrupted. So, so, so I wasn't going to go for a um, a story from the continent, although I don't know if anyone's seen the video today of Iguain's penalty making his debut in the MLS. I haven't. Was it a, was it a, a, a sitter? He missed the goal by quite a long way. <laughs> <laughs> so that's definitely one for people to try and find on Twitter if they've not seen it. And then somebody sort of did the Martin Keogh and Ruben Nestor jump in front of him. And, uh, <laughs> and, and rather than rather than doing which Ru, what Rude did back in the day, which was sort of say, you know, this is not the moment to have a fight. Uh, instead, uh, Higuain tried to square up to him, which I think was just trying to protect his, his embarrassment. Um, I do have a story from the weekend, Dan, and, and I'm not, as I say, going to go abroad. I'm going to go to the Championship. Um, I'm a big fan of Championship football. I think it's a great league. It, it's a bonkers league. Anyone can go on a run of six six straight defeats and then turn it around and go six straight victories. But I want to focus on a team who started with three straight defeats, and that's Derby County. Because I thought Derby came really strong at the end of last season, and and were probably not that far away from from uh, you know making a real promotion push. Uh, probably just left it a little bit late. And I look this season; they uh, played three, lost three. They lost four nil at home to Blackburn at the weekend. Um, they've also been knocked out of the the Carabao Cup by uh, by Preston. Um, they've managed one goal in their three league games. This is with Wayne Rooney playing as a defensive midfield player um, <laughs> and an assistant manager. I, I think, you know, Philip Koku had a slow start last year as, as manager at Derby. And then when it looked like he was under pressure, they managed to put a run together. At the moment, that's a really interesting story for me. Derby's wage bill must be reasonably decent. 
Um, you know, the, the boy up front, Marriott, they spent a lot of money on when, when Frank was there. Uh, the um, obviously Rooney's not playing for peanuts. They've got they've got people like Andre Wisdom who, who started at Liverpool. Dan, you'll you'll remember him at the back again. Okay. He's been a Premier League footballer, so he's not going to be playing for for a, you know pocket change. Um, and at the moment, they they look embarrassingly poor. Uh, the goals they conceded on Saturday were an absolute embarrassment. Um, I think it was three 0 inside fifteen minutes. My old friend Tony Pulis was uh, was watching it on, <laughs> on on soccer Saturday, and he, he didn't really know where any of the players were, and struggled with right from left when he was doing his updates. But um, he was pretty disgusted with the Derby defending, and with good reason. It's a story worth keeping an eye on, because if Koku were to be replaced in the next few weeks. I think the safe money would probably be on Wayne Rooney starting his managerial career. I think there's there's something going around the water in these Midlands because Nottingham Forest are zero and three as well, aren't they? They are, and again, I, I don't want to be one of these sort of little Englanders who talks about we must have more British managers. <laughs> um, but but Derby County managed by Philip Koku and and Sabri Lumushi is uh, the manager. At, uh, um, I think I've probably pronounced that wrong, but but it's a French manager anyway. <laughs> Nottingham Forest. And I look down the championship now and so many clubs have gone the foreign route in terms of trying to bring their manager in. And it, look, there are some great success stories. Daniel Farker at Norwich and um, Warner and the uh, Varno, Wagner, Wagner, wasn't it? Wagner, the, the guy at Huddersfield did a great job. Um, so there have been some success stories. I think uh, Pellegrini was there, wasn't he? When, um, when Middlesbrough went up a couple of years ago. But overall, it seems to me that a lot of these managers are coming in and failing. And where is a stepping stone if you're a good British manager in League One or in League Two if you can't now get a championship job? And and, and at what point does this fascination with appointing a foreign manager slip down to League One and suddenly... If you're a British manager, a young British manager trying to make your way, you've got to start in the National League because there's, there's no opportunities. I, I do think it's something that bears, bears looking at. And you're right, Dan, the, the two East Midland clubs at the moment are not in a great shake. And I can't help but think maybe, maybe a manager who understands English football a little bit better uh, might be the way for, for them to go, especially at this moment in time. Equally on that, though, Paul. I mean, and, and yes, I'm not. I'm not saying I think broadly it is a, a valid point. But to the to the point you made earlier about the championship, it is so wacky that yeah. they could be in the top six by November. Do you know what I mean? It is. It is that sort of league. So maybe it's also a bit early to judge after was it three games? I think so. I mean, yes, they've both had poor starts. Um, but yeah, equally, it is. It is such a daft league that um, yeah, by, by you know <laughs> they could easily be top six by Christmas. Um, and we've seen it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah we've yeah. seen it before. And then he could be saw... in the bottom three by the end of the season. You know, it is, it is that, uh, it is that crazy. We saw, we saw it as I said with Derby last year. Got off to a really slow start. So it, it, it's by no means time to panic. I think the reason I'm particularly interested in Derby is I think if Koku is moved on, then the obvious, the mm. obvious move is to yeah. make Rooney manager, and and that'll be yeah. interesting to see how he does. You know, we've mm. we've obviously seen how how Frank did in the Championship and is now doing at Chelsea and. Um, you know, Gerard's up in Scotland, but it but it is interesting to see that generation of England players, how many of them make a go of it as managers. I wonder if Gerard can set up a defence better than Frank, because it can't be too difficult to do so. Well, didn't they start with a record number of consecutive clean sheets in Scotland? 
I think they did. I think they've set a record at the start of the season, Rangers, for the most consecutive clean sheets to start a season. Um, I mean, they've they've dropped some points in the last few games, and I think Celtic now, if they win their game in hand, go clear. But um, but Rangers defensively certainly started very well. Well, one one story I'd like to pick up on actually is um, Lincoln, who are get crashing the top six of. League One, they're actually second at the moment. There's only three games gone. Um, but I just wanted to pay tribute to them for the way they approached the game against Liverpool, having been 4-0 down at half-time and 5-0 down within 16 seconds of the second half kicking off. They had a real good goal of second half and they obviously play some good football. And I'd like to see them do well. Yeah, it's a club, obviously, you know, I am... Um, I know of uh, quite well the the Cowleys and coached against them when they were in non-league football. And obviously they brought Lincoln into the league and did very, very well. Went off to Huddersfield and it, it didn't quite work out there for them. And then and then Lincoln have brought Michael Appleton in, who again, he is more of that mould of he's an experienced football league manager. He's had five or six jobs in the football league um, and so far so good at Lincoln. I'm surprised that they've started so well. I thought they might struggle this year. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, managing Lincoln is a bit different from managing Leeks, yes, or B, or whichever team from your league. Um. Well, so the Cowleys, were, the Cowleys were down here in London. The Cowleys managed in the Essex Senior League, and they were Concord Rangers. They took Concord from the Essex Senior League to the Conference South. Um, they did a, a really, really good job. I always loved hearing your tales of um, of refereeing in the lower le- in, the, in the lower lower leagues. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you think the uh, if you think the referees are bad in the football league, go and watch a non-league game. My word! I, I, at I least they don't have at, at least they don't have VAR to um to help them out, as it were. Yeah, help help them out by making things a whole lot more convoluted. Um, I think we're we're about done, gents. We've not had time. We've we've got personal things on, so we've not been able to to watch. Well, we have been able to watch, but we've not been able to go through the whole weekend program hopefully we'll, we'll be able to, to get that format back again next week um but i'd like to, to just mention that we're going to have a special edition of the podcast later this week um i've spoken to james bentley who's a, a berry fan and he is going to be talking to us just under into very sad about um the berry situation how it's affected him personally and how the club can move forward if, if they're ever allowed to do so it's um a must listen for any football fan and don't ever let the facts that your football club might really really annoy you from time to time I might just be about to be annoyed by Liverpool don't ever take football for granted and don't ever take your club for granted because James's story and Barry's story is genuinely really sad it's genuinely really moved me and on that uh, less than cheerful note um, let's thank you all for listening Paul and Khan it's been a pleasure and fun as always Yep, thanks, Dan. And hopefully we'll be back again same time next week. Um, And I'm sure we'll have a lot more VAR skullduggery to talk about and uh, penalties being overturned um, despite no clear and obvious errors and old Jose writing off the Carabao Cup, which he was doing this morning, which, to be fair, I've been doing for the last 20 years. (laughs) It's a surprise a little bit. I mean, I know we want to finish. It's a surprise that Jose's doing that because didn't he go to Spurs to try and win a trophy? Isn't that the point? He, he, He loves a good cup as well. He loves, exactly. to, he loves to pad his CV out with the, the League Cup. Um, yeah, it's been great, great fun, gents, and we'll, we'll, we'll all catch you next week. We look forward to that.